0: Welcome to today's S&EB webinar. I'm hosted by the Division of Sustainable Food Systems, my name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB, and glad you're joining us today. A special welcome to the guests and non-members of SNEB, and, and especially the students as well who are joining this webinar. I know you're going to enjoy today's presentation. Um, if you look in the GoToWebinar tool panel, uh, the slides for today are avail- is available as a handout. So please download those uh, so you can follow along with the presentation. We will take questions at the end of the presentation and you can type those in the question block so we can moderate uh, questions to our presenter. If we have more questions, we have a very large audience today, if we have more questions than we have time for, uh, we will try to do a follow-up email summarizing some of the answers to those questions. Uh, When I close the webinar today, there'll be a short survey, and we appreciate your feedback on this session, as well as ideas you have for future webinars. And then watch for an email follow-up. It should reach you by Friday of this week, and the email include uh, the handout again, the recording that we're making of the presentation, um, and the CEU certificate that you're earning for your live attendance today. So I will turn our presentation over to our moderator. Professor Diane Smith provides outreach and educational programming centered around food access, health promotion, and community engagement for diverse populations in northwestern Washington T- State. She is moderating on behalf of a large team of organizers um, from the DSFS division.
1: Thank you, Rachel, and welcome to everyone to this uh, really exciting um, webinar today on food sustainability, kind of going back to the future. Um, The next slide shows the competence the nutrition education competencies that we anticipate you'll be achieving. And then the next slide um, is the contact information for our speakers, uh, Joan Gusau, as well as um, uh, Dr. Carlson. Um, The next slide is our disclosure, which is part of our housekeeping. And now we can go into the content of our presentation. Um, this next slide of the sustainable food system is actually, I just learned, I came from uh, Acadia University or student at Acadia University that Dr. Carlson um, is, is, is familiar with. Um, we know that reversing the impact of unsustainable food systems is both an individual and environmental health. And it's a topic that's a growing in importance and in urgency, yet at the same time, challenges in understanding and achieving sustainability in food and nutrition really feels daunting. So today, uh, we'll take a walk down memory lane uh, at a time when s eB adopted sustainable food as an important issue to take on. Then we'll look at today's information about sustainable food systems and learn how educational resources that support both planetary and personal health are incorporated into our uh, university learning. Um, I am honored to have two esteemed guests with us today, leading the conversation. Dr. Gusau is a former chair of the Teachers College um, of Nutrition Education and the author of the classic book, The Feeding Web, Issues of new nutritional ecology and Dr. Liesl Carlson, uh, from Acadia University at Nova Scotia focuses on helping the dietetic profession incorporate principles of food sustainability into, um, their, their learning experience. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the, um, the, the microphone over to, uh, Dr. Gousseau.
2: Good afternoon. Um,
3: I'm not at all sure exactly where I'm going to take you today, but since I'm surely the oldest living person in the Division of Sustainable Food Systems who was there when all this started, I know that I'm there as your historian. Oh, by the way, I have to say, looking at my own picture, I'm not a PhD. I'm an EDD. We got that fixed on the other slides, but it didn't get fixed here. Until I got the link for this webinar, I didn't really know what the whole thing was meant to be about. And I surely didn't know that you would be invited to look at the video of my real organic interview with Dave Chapman. So, of course, I had to relook at the interview to see what I would said a couple of years ago, assuming that some of you would have looked at it. And now that I have, I don't think I need to say anything more. I can just quit and leave that as my statement for the day. But I do feel obliged to share a little history. Before I do, let me talk briefly about sustainability, what it meant when we started our division in 1987 and how it has, like all beneficial terms, been essentially co-opted by those who continually lobby to prevent significant change in our present unsustainable system of feeding ourselves. Let me begin then, not at the beginning, but in 2006, with my favorite and most economical definition of sustainable, which comes from Michael Pollan, the very gifted writer, whom we are fortunate to have lured into our area of interest, even if only temporarily. In The Omnivore's Dilemma, Michael wrote, quote, The inspiration was to find a way to feed ourselves more in keeping with the logic of nature, to build a food system that would draw its fertility and energy from the sun. To feed ourselves otherwise, Pollan wrote, was unsustainable. A word that's been so abused, we're apt to forget what it very specifically means. Sooner or later, it must collapse. It is, of course, that implication of collapse as a consequence of unsustainably producing food the way we're doing it now that has made the word sustainable so dangerous. The word itself insists that the system we're deriving our food from must be seriously changed if it's going to continue to feed us. So how did a Division of Sustainable Food Systems come about? The Division had its start at the 1987 annual meeting for what was then, and for the following 15 years, the Society for Nutrition Education, SNE, not SNEB. We didn't have behavior in the title then. At that meeting, a group of about 25 SNE members meant to discuss the met to discuss the idea of finding a way to formalize our shared interest in the issue of sustainability where the food system was concerned and our shared conviction that the topic should be regularly represented at our annual meetings. We were meeting in California that year and thanks to Gail Feenstra, our group toured an organic farm in Bolinas. Two of the participants at that first meeting, Kate Clancy and myself, had only recently published in the Society's journal an article entitled Dietary Guidelines for Sustainability. In which we pointed out that outside the nutrition community, there had for many years been a lot of discussion about how agriculture and the natural environment were affected by individuals' food choices. But within the profession, we noted, there, quote, appeared to have been no recognition that food choices might regularly be made not merely in terms of their nutritional impact on the individual but in terms of their impact on the long-term sustainability of the food system so in our article we referenced the 1980 dietary guidelines that contained information on only on the human health implications of the recommended diet pattern as is still the case as you know 40 years later and then we suggested ways that these guidelines could be used that they were designed to promote human health could also be used to promote the health of the planet. For example, the admonition to avoid too much fat, saturated fat, and cholesterol was used to point out the high environmental cost of producing animals that produced all that excess fat that we were urged to avoid. I would like to record here something astonishing that I discovered, but I, I I have to do it because I think it's so amusing. When I looked up the history of the dietary guidelines, the scientific report that supported the diet diet guidelines has grown from 19 pages in 1985 to 835 pages in 2020. Although the guidelines themselves, as you know, haven't fundamentally changed much in 35 years. I can't believe we know that many more pages more about why to make those simple dietary recommendations. I have no idea what all those 835 pages consist of. And despite all that expansion, today's guidelines remain, as you know, still thunderously silent on the issue of sustainability. Indeed, the FAO report on our guidelines ends with the following pointed comment. This is the FAO report talking about the US dietary guidelines. Sustainability was not formally defined or addressed in the dietary guidelines for Americans 2020 to 2025. But back to our division history. At our 1987 get together, we enthusiastically agreed that we should formally organize. And since we viewed our role as seriously educational, we should take part in planning at least one session dealing with sustainability issues for the next annual meeting, then we learned that the next annual meeting had already been planned, so we decided that we would aim for the 1989 meeting. The notes Janet Savage and I sent out after that first little get-together indicate that we were calling ourselves FASIC, F-A-S-I-G, F-A-S-S-I-G, for Food, Agriculture, and Sustainability Interest Group, a name that carried over until at least December 1990 when we officially became the Division of Sustainable Food Systems. Now I need to confess that I'm reaching the age where I have trouble remembering what I had for breakfast. So I don't remember what's happened since the long ago founding. So I'm going to complete my task as memory keeper by leaning on my reliability as file keeper and sum up a few interesting things I learned from the old newsletters that I found in my files. The summer 1998 newsletter reported on an official mission statement that we had developed at the meeting two years earlier. The mission of the Division of Sustainable Food Systems is to promote food systems that are environmentally sound, socially just, economically viable, and that produce quality food. And then it goes on to say that we will support leadership and education and research and so on about how we apply that knowledge. And at the 1998 annual meeting in Albuquerque, New Mexico, we sponsored or co-sponsored several sessions, including a session where Gusso and Clancy presented on the topic of dietary guidelines for sustainability 12 years later. Kate and I commented on, among other things, a growing movement toward promoting local food systems as a way of helping the public learn about agriculture and sustainability. At our division's informal breakfast get together in our business meeting, we formalized plans to create a session for the next annual meeting and noted with satisfaction, that our division had submitted one of the more than 200,000 primarily negative comments on the regulations USD had proposed for the federal organic standards, saying that they undermined current organic standards. As you are probably too young to remember, those regulations were subsequently withdrawn. And I like to think we contributed about. In the spring of 1999, our members talked of developing a guidebook incorporating local foods into SNE conferences, and by the following year, Sidney Massey was being given credit for a pamphlet I still have in my file, Guidelines to Increase the Use of Local Foods at Meetings. I have no idea if it's still being used. I hope so, or something like it. DFS, DSFS was then regularly sponsoring or co-sponsoring sessions at the annual meetings, including for the year 2000 an interactive session that could, with a slight updating of the title, this was 2000, remember, attract a crowd today, genetically engineered foods, communication, and controversy in the new millennium. In closing out my newsletter report, let me read a comment from the June 2001 issue. This is 21 years ago. By one of the division's co-chairs, that is, I won't name her, that is very relevant to today's topic, quote, With news and information on the organic industrial complex, we saw it coming, didn't we? The increased concentration of the food industry, the continual growth of fast food, the supersizing and the increasing standardization and styrofoamization of the American food supply, it is easy to get discouraged about our task. And it surely was and is. So I'll let my history lesson peter out when my, la- when my newsletter collection runs out in January of 2004. That's 18 plus years ago, at which time the Division of Sustainable Food Systems is putting a great deal of emphasis on local foods and on relocalizing the food system. And let me end my remarks by sharing with you my current view of where our nation has arrived at regarding helping promote a sustainable food system. This is a question I assume our subsequent speaker will address, but since I've been talking about local diets since the 1970s, probably well before most of you were born, and since I've been called in print the matriarch, not a term once once <laughs> once applied to oneself, the matriarch of a local movement, I figure I can at least offer a long view. Decades ago, I invented and have now taught for almost 50 years a course about things that affect the food system. So my students always ask me if I'm encouraged by how much things have changed in that time. And after some deep thought, I've concluded that the answer is no. I'm not as encouraged as I wish I could be. Yes, there are more farmers markets. Yes, interest in CSAs has revived since COVID struck. And yes, the cracks, chasms really, in our top heavy globally sourced food system have been revealed by the pandemic and reacted to. But there is, as there has always been, an elephant in the room. As I said earlier, a sustainable food system would need to be based on an agriculture that, fitting back into nature's rules, drew almost all its energy and fertility from the sun. That is, an agriculture that didn't didn't need a lot of purchased inputs like fertilizer and pesticides, whose heavy use is polluting our soil and water and air. Long before... USDA was required to define organic agriculture. Its practitioners met that requirement. But for the producers of those inputs, an increasingly concentrated, wealthy and powerful group, an agriculture that could flourish without making use of their products would be very bad news indeed. So they lobby very hard to keep real change from happening. As for the people who process and market the products of our soils, They make money by minimizing costs, which they can do most efficiently just the way they did 50 years ago, by minimizing the amount of actual farm-grown food they use in their ultra-processed products. Alas, as we are now beginning to recognize, these ultra-processed items that make up 60% of our foods are probably a major cause of our appalling health statistics, which means that our industrial food system is unsustainable, not only in terms of what it does to planetary health, but increasingly in terms of its effects on human health as well. So all in all, our food system has not moved significantly towards sustainability in the 35 years since our division first began to push in that direction. But as someone said last week at a food system conference at my university, we are in the middle of a demonstration of an unsustainable food system and crisis is opportunity. The opportunity arises from the fact that consumers have power and was as demonstrated during the upheavals of this pandemic, given the chance, they do really like to get food from farmers. The chains of distribution are so long and impersonal that very few of us adults or children have any connection with the people who grew or reared what we eat. But in trying to teach people to eat better and more sustainably, we don't need to educate them about all those complicated distribution chains. All we need to do is help them learn how to shorten the distance between themselves and farmers after educating ourselves about how they can best do that wherever they live. So that's my message this more evening, this afternoon. I look forward to hearing what my fellow speaker and what others of you attending think about how far we have come toward achi- achieving a sustainable food supply. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much, Joan. That was, um, uh, inspiring as well as discouraging. It's interesting that balance that we always try and achieve. And now we're going to hear from Dr. Carlson on uh, steps that we can take to, uh, um, to address these, uh, pressing problems.
2: Thank you, Diane. <laughs> uh, and thank you, Joan Gathau, for that introduction. Um, I, I, uh, I I hope to be able to draw from some of the pieces that you have left us with. Um, I would like to say thank you to the Society for Nutrition and Education and Behavior for inviting me to come and speak and I feel tremendously honoured to be able to share a webinar um, with you uh, Joan. And so my name is Liesl Carlson, I am a registered dietitian in Canada. Uh, and I do most of my research on this exact topic. Um, And so I'm hopefully here to be the bearer of good news, at least practical news. I'm hoping that I can leave you with a few pieces that you can uh, do directly, more that you can think about um, and ways that you can approach what you're doing. So I have dedicated most of my career to the concept of sustainability Uh, But definitely in the last six years to how do we define sustainable food systems and diets in a way that's helpful and practical? Um, What are the roles for nutrition and dietetics professionals really broadly defined? Um, And also, what is it that we need to be able to make better and more systemic change? So those are the things that I'm going to talk about today. Um, And hopefully... Uh, To be able to do so in a fairly short amount of time. My one challenge is that uh, I'll be, I'll have to talk about things at a fairly high level, but I'm leaving you with lots of references and places you can go for more information. So I'm going to start with, um, the topic that I always start with and write about when I'm writing or speaking about this topic and that the topic is not new. And, and, and what I love about this, um, webinar is that that is our main topic. This is not new. So we've just had a really nice his, historic, historical look at what's been happening with the Society for Nutrition Education and now behavior in the United States. I'd also like to give credit to Ellen Swallow Richards, uh, who was doing most of her work in the late 1800s and is, um, given credit for being the mother of human ecology. And I think also we can argue for the maybe grandmother, matriarch, may I say, (laughs) of, um, uh, of home economics, really what she was, was a scientist doing exactly this type of work well before the time where women were invited to be scientists at the table. I also make regular reference to the work, um, Joan, that you have just shared with us as uh, as an example of fantastic work that happened decades ago that we are still not acting on. I also wanna make, um, Uh, Reference to the many other groups, movements and scholars who have been contributing to this field even since the late 1980s. Those who are working on ecological nutrition, ecological public health, eco dietetics, new nutrition science project, critical dietetics. There are actually quite a number more. Um, And so the work that I'm doing actually draws on all of these. So thank you to all of those who went before me. So what are we talking about? I love the definition that you put forth. Um don't because it's really quite simple and you're right. Michael Pollan has a fantastic way with words. You know, just, you know, eat more plants really is what he's saying. He has this nice way of saying it really simply. What I'll share with you is the definition that the um that the FAO and the United Nations use. It's likely the one that is most broadly distributed these days. Sustainable food systems are those that deliver food security and nutrition Mm -hmm. for all in such a way that economic, social and environmental bases to generate food security and nutrition for future generations is not compromised.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: What I like about this definition is they thread together those concepts of economic, social, and environmental, that sort of triple bottom line that, you know, we like to grab onto. And it also has the intergenerational piece in there. What is valuable about this is it's a very nice visionary definition. It describes a future that I think very few of us could argue with being a good thing. What I'm challenged by is it doesn't help us get there. So there's nothing in this definition that is operationally useful. Um, for that, you need more Michael Pollan books. What I tend to go to are sustainability principles. And here's where I'll pause and say, you know, I'm sure lots of people who are listening today are hoping that I will just give a checklist of, you know, what does a sustainable diet mean? It means eat more plants. It means, you know, more breastfeeding, less packaging and all of that. And yes. Well, those things are really useful. They've been written about really broadly, and I can certainly direct you to where to find lists like that. The challenge is, as was already referred to, is what's sustainable in my community in Nova Scotia and Canada may not be sustainable in California. And it's certainly not sustainable in South Africa. And so and so unfortunately, those those risks are are, sorry, those lists are risky. So what I tend to go to that I was introduced to in my graduate studies in strategic sustainable development are sustainability principles from the um, framework for strategic sustainable development. So in this definition, which provides in a way, boundary conditions for a sustainable society, nature is not subject to systematically increasing concentrations of substances extracted from the Earth's crust So fossil fuels, for example, concentrations of substances produced by society, plastics, for example, degradation by physical means, you know, what's happening in our oceans today with species collapse projected for 2050. In a sustainable society, people are not subject to structural obstacles to their health, to influence, to competence, to impartiality and to meaning making. What I like about this definition is it tells you much more concretely what you cannot do. And in a sustainable society, you cannot do these things. And it's a relatively complete list. What I also like about it is it tells you what you can't do. But that means that everything else you can do. Right. It creates an enormous amount of room for what the sustainable food system could look like. Different in Nova Scotia than in South Africa. But it tells you what you really can't do. So this it's important to point out that what is important here is not that we can't that we, um sorry the way to interpret it is not that we cannot use fossil fuels it's not that plastic cannot exist it's that we can't have systematically increasing concentrations of this in our biosphere it also means that this is not a utopia it is not that in our future nobody will be unhealthy what it means is that we can't have a system that structures in ill health. So where we have systemic ill health and increasing amounts of in-health, that is not sustainable. So if you wanna learn more about these principles and how they can be used in a practical way, I've got a link on the right-hand side of the slide. um, And I'll also come back to those a little bit later on. So Joan, I think you did a really fantastic job of describing what are some of the really systemic challenges in our food system. I'm also gonna to turn to this image which comes from IPES Food, which describes across the bottom in the white bar our food systems and some of the drivers that it has. Uh, and what I like about this is it puts human health in the middle. Now, I don't normally put human health in the middle, but I think most people in this webinar, that that is what you do for a living, right? You're working to improve human health outcomes generally through food and nutrition and what this helps us to illustrate is that the food systems we currently have are systematically obstructing people from their ability to obtain good health right so you know sustainability principle number five out the window if you follow the infinity sign down and around to the left we see that our food systems are systematically uh, increasing our concentrations or amounts of food insecurity and unequal access to food. We are systematically increasing the sort of westernization of our diets and the unhealthy dietary patterns and health consequences of those. We keep going, you know, um, environmental contamination that we heard a little bit about earlier, occupational health hazards in places like probably our best known are our meat packing plants and the health hazards for those who are working in them, all of these are actually impacting human health in negative ways. If we trace the uh, diagram around to the right-hand side, we also see that there are a number of compounding factors. The one I'll focus on is climate change. So we know that our food systems contribute somewhere between 20 and 50% of human-induced greenhouse gas emissions. So we are directly contributing to climate change. And as climate changes and climate variability increases, that also impacts our ability to produce enough and nutritious food, which has also direct and indirect human health uh, consequences. So I think, especially given the definition I just, just gave, there is unequivocal evidence that our system is not just unsustainable, but that it is impacting human health and that that's obviously not the goal that we're going for. So how can nutrition and dietetics community or professionals contribute to the development of globally sustainable food systems. So this is the work that I have been doing over the last number of years, is trying to trying to figure out as a profession, as a community, if we're gonna stick our shovel in the ground and start digging, where do we do this so that we can actually dig the biggest hole, right? Or, or create the most leverage. So in doing so, I have spent a lot of time with Canadian dietitians and with dietitians across 30 different countries around the world to have these conversations that have managed to identify a number of roles and opportunities. I absolutely don't have time to talk about them all, but I'm going to talk about some examples and ways to think about it. So on the right hand side of the, um, the image that you're looking at is an image that I borrowed from, with permission, Nourish. Uh, It's a food system map that I've adapted to show dietitians where they work. And so in the green circle, you have our ecological systems, right, that impact food systems, air, water, biodiversity, all the ones that we know about. In the yellow circle, we have our social systems, uh, and these social systems contain a number of subsystems. Um, and those subsystems are substance systems in our society, which are important to food systems, You know, our production systems, our political systems, our health systems, etc. And written in there, I have examples of where nutrition and dietetics professionals already work. So working with, you know, food marketing boards, working with retailers, uh, working on policy with government, doing nutrition education in community organizations, working in clinical settings. So we actually work in a way that's distributed throughout food systems in a very, very strategic way. So message number one is integrate sustainable food systems into existing practice. This is not an area of specialization. This is a a lens through which all nutrition and dietetics professionals, and quite frankly, all people, I have my biases, but I think everyone (laughs) should just be looking and making decisions. So the decisions that we make in all of these settings should be informed by sustainability. And then, because I want to leave you with something practical, what would we do in each of these? And so there are examples of what could be done in any one of these settings and any one of these roles. But I'll break down and show some examples for facilitating knowledge development and then facilitating infrastructure and policy so the examples you see on the slide now are ones that I worked with Canadian dietitians to come up with, and I'll, sh- and I will also provide references and other places you can go for other examples. So Canadian dietitians, for example, identified that one of our biggest barriers, this top row here, is competing food health and sustainability messages that lack evidence. So greenwashing really is what we're talking about coming from, for the most part, powerful industry that we heard about a little bit earlier. And so the leverage points or the actions that Canadian dietitians identified as being really critical are developing a common language. So a really strong understanding of what we mean when we say sustainability so that we can then identify and dispel common myths, help people to separate fact from fiction in the, in, at the individual setting at the community setting. Dietitians are doing this all over, right? They're using social media, they're using their communication skills to be able to dispel these myths. But it's challenging to do unless we have a solid foundation in what it means uh, ourselves. Otherwise we are also subject to all of those messages that we can't interpret. Developing a case for sustainability um, is a really important one too. So being able to translate the message around sustainability and food and nutrition into economic terms into publicly accessible language. And these are skills that nutrition educators are actually already really good at, but we don't always necessarily use um, use sustainability language. We're very good at doing this in a health perspective. We just need to expand our reach. So there's a couple of other examples on the slide which I won't necessarily go into, but again, uh, you can access the full article for the full <laughs> for the full tables. I don't need to describe to this audience that knowledge development is not enough to change behavior. So the other components that dietitians looked at was where else can we start to create more systemic change? In Canada, and I am going to make the bold assumption this is no different in the States or in many Western countries, is that we have economic structures that favor intensified food production systems. There's no question. They are intensified and, and, and everything pulls production towards larger and more intensified. So some points of leverage that dietitians can be doing apropos of the earlier comments around localized food systems is actually to get in and really specifically advocate for structures that also support medium and small scale players in the food system. So we already heard about a couple of examples for Uh, local foods at meetings. Dietitians can also join local food policy councils. There's some fantastic examples of that. If you're working in an institutional setting, it's creating institutional policies about where you get food and which producers you're prioritizing. And so those seem like really small actions, but collectively they can really, really add up. Uh, Another example I'll pull from Canada, which may become meaningful to some others in the room, is that in Canada one of the challenges for those working with schools and with educators was that schools were not allowed to, to purchase any meat that hadn't been through a federally inspected uh, meat or sorry federally inspected meat so from a federally inspected plant those federally inspected plants generally exist in southern Canada and they tend to exist in really highly densely populated places What that meant for northern remote and indigenous communities in Canada's north was that access to, for example, wild game was not just inaccessible, but actually just not allowed in the school. And there's sort of been some tremendous work with nutrition professionals working on policy to revisit this need for federally inspected meat so that schools could access locally available, more culturally appropriate and much more meaningful food to nourish children at school. And so while, while the federally inspected meat requirement made sense from a food safety perspective, it was a significant impediment to sustainable food systems in Canada's north. So there so there are some examples of things that people can be doing at multiple different levels. You'll see the reference at the bottom there, there's a, a, quite a number of more examples in there. So that's what we can do. The other thing I, I want to make sure we talk about is also how we do it. So it's not just about sticking our shovel in the ground through knowledge development, facilitating, you know, learning opportunities and policy change. It's also about how we do it. So my work has shown me four, um, how to points that I think are worth sharing. One is recognizing context. So again, you know, while maybe, um, almond milk makes sense in California, it is not a sustainable choice. In northern Canada and there are all kinds of other examples around um, the specifics of what a sustainable food system looked like that are very contextualized so dietitians and nutritionists and food professionals need to recognize that context and in order to do so multiple forms of knowledge so that could be institutional knowledge community knowledge it could be culturally specific knowledge and an example that's really prominent right now is some good work coming out of Australia around for example recognizing indigenous knowledge in how we go about choosing what happens in a particular community, really, really important. Building a common language, I think I've already spoken about is that we need to be able to read from the same or a similar lexicon so that we can clearly articulate why something is sustainable or not sustainable and help to make better decisions. Not just blindly reading from some you know, global recommendation that may or may not be true in our area. The other one is collaborate broadly. This is absolutely relevant to dietitians and not only. So you can see in the systems on this slide here that we are not the only ones who are working in these systems. So being able to work together with professionals in other sectors and other disciplines uh, is going to be critical. And then the final one is fostering community ownership. So no one likes to be told what to do. We need to engage our communities and the people we're working with in developing solutions that make sense in their area. So with that, uh, I want to highlight that there are challenges. I'm sure it comes as no surprise to everybody uh, on this webinar. So this information comes from work that I've done with dietitians around the world. At an individual level, we have significant knowledge confidence and competence barriers as individual practitioners, as individual professionals, right around understanding what the topic is. So, you know, building that common knowledge is really important. At a professional level, we also have a cultural challenge. So our culture is not necessarily supportive of this. And I've got a big red line circled around these two layers of the system in the challenges, because these are the ones that I tend to focus on working on and I'm gonna share a little bit about. However, We also recognize that there are challenges in society that really get in the way of the work that we do. Uh, And Joan, you talked about quite a number of these. Profits as priority is a really big one. And we also have challenges in our environment uh, that also make it really hard to do. So again, I'm gonna focus on the ones inside the red circle here. The work that I did uh, with dietitians around the around the world highlighted sort of two camps. One is that most of us feel on the right hand side of the slide here that this this work is central to our role, and I think it sounds like it has been central to our role for not just decades, but you know over a century and a half. However, there are other perspectives, and you see some um, quotes on the right hand side of the slide here that we don't necessarily have the social license. To operate in this space, and that lack of confidence—that lack of confidence that this is part of our scope of practice—is really getting in the way of nutrition and dietetics professionals from standing up and just doing what needs to be done. Uh, and so, this is the piece that I focus. So, you know, this is really within that red circle: is what are the barriers that that we not only have created, but also that we have a little bit more control over. So I'm gonna leave with a little bit of a, uh, I guess a positive note is that, you know, as my work has progressed, uh, I have started to think a lot more about if those are our barriers, what can we do? There's plenty of ideas out there about how we stick our shovel in the ground, but not everyone knows how to do it. The main message I'm getting when I talk to professionals is, I think this is a really good idea. I really care about sustainability. I have no idea what to do. <laughs> And so I'll leave you with a number of tools. One is position papers and roll papers coming out of the United States. There are uh, there are some really solid and newly um newly re-released position papers on sustainable food systems coming from Marie Spiker and colleagues. I'm sure some of you are on this call. Uh, the Canadians have a roll paper that I contributed to with some very specific lists of things that you can be doing. Uh, Also recently, EFAD out of Europe has got a position paper and hot off the press coming out of Australia is another position paper. Really confirming this is not only our role, but helping to guide where we can uh, where we can work. I've been working with the ICDA, the International Confederation of Sustainable or sorry, of Dietetics Associations to develop a toolkit. And I'll show you a couple of the things on that toolkit today. And my third tip is find yourself a mentor. There are some fantastic people doing fantastic work. So if you're feeling um, a lack of confidence about what to do next, there are some great examples. So really briefly, because you can go and explore this on your own, what you'll find in the toolkit that I mentioned are professional development tools, resources such as new reports that are coming out, new research that's coming out that we've annotated. And an opportunity to engage in conversation through a community of practice, which is quite new, not so well utilized yet. But please, you know, engage. Help us make that happen. Given what dietitians have been saying to me, two of my students developed a sustainability self-assessment. It allows you. It's under the professional development tool that allows you to go in and describe your level of comfort and your knowledge needs. And what will happen on the toolkit is if you fill out the self-assessment we will then or the toolkit will then recommend for you where to start so what resources are there that'll help you fill your knowledge needs Um, so i recommend you do that it also helps us to collect passive anonymous data about what dietitians learning needs are in terms of level and topic so please check that out you'll also find learning modules these are self-led learning modules that you can explore on your own time. And what they do is dive much more deeply into the three topics that I've talked about today. So what are the concepts? How is this relevant? And what can I do? Uh, so please do check those out. I'm gonna pilot test them hopefully later this year so you'll be able to hear more about them. And then finally, just amazing mentors. So don't forget there are people out there that can help you do what you're doing. Uh, one of the things we've been capturing on this toolkit are case studies. They're examples from dietitians. Jamaica, in Malawi, in India, in the United States, in Australia, all over the place, who are doing it. So you can read about some really great examples of people who are putting this into practice. And apropos my comments about um, the regional context and the contextually relevant practice, we do have regional contacts on the site that can help you translate, you know, what might be um, what might be more relevant for the area that you're working or just someone that you can get in contact. So I've got Marie Spiker here. She's our contact for the United States, but there are there are other ones. OK, so with that, um, I will conclude my conversation about, you know, what do the concepts mean? What are our roles and responsibilities and what are some of the tools that you can use? If you want to get in touch, my contact information is here. I do have a LinkedIn account i don't post prolifically but i usually share new and interesting things when i have them so you're welcome to connect with me there and i think for that i will end here okay. there are some references that you can go to um but i will um i will turn this back over to diane uh,
1: <clears throat> thank you very much uh both dr gusso and carl and dr carlson is um A great framework for our conversation, and I'm waiting to see if there are any questions from the audience that that you would like to direct to either of our speakers. I would like I have one that I'd like to start with. Um, You talk about a um, a common language, and some of the verbiage that I'm hearing now is regenerative farming rather than sustainable farming, and so I'd like your perspectives on how these. Um, these words and definitions, either co-op what we're trying to do or promote and support it.
3: Lisa, why don't you start?
2: Sure, I can start with that one. I think regenerative agriculture uh, versus, you know, organic agriculture or all the other terms there. Now, I'm not an agricultural specialist, but I think two things are going on. One is that as we learn more and more about particular areas, we have new ways of describing them. So people are, are, are also often talking about resilient food systems. It's different than sustainable food systems, but they're compatible terms. Um, where this is a positive is that it allows us to look more specifically at what it is we need. Um, And so can be leveraged in really useful ways in particular contexts. The other way that it's really useful is that we get bored really easily. Um, And so it sort of makes something new and sexy once again, right? So we used to talk about vegetarian diets, but now we talk about plant-based diets, right? They are often the same thing, um, but it sort of re-sparks an interest. And then the other flip side of that is that you can create a lot of confusion, right? So I'm still, con- you know, off talking to students about what's the difference between a plant-based diet and a vegetarian diet and all these things. So, so what it can also mean is that the terms get co-opted and used in different ways in different areas. Um, you're right. I think what would be really useful is a lexicon of what all these different terms, terms actually mean.
3: Okay. I, Just second what you just said at the end. I mean, right now it's being used as a way of confusing things. It's, it's making it seem like a giant cereal company that plants thousands of acres of corn without, without plowing is somehow regenerative. And it's, it's, that's not what it means. I mean, the the term regenerative has been introduced as a, as a sort of blurring kind of as a sort of veil. I mean, we could, we could talk, we could really, I, I just the other day was listening to a, a, a webinar by Elliot Coleman, who's sort of the genius of of organic agriculture in this country. I mean, he's been growing organically for probably 40 years and it's just he makes a joke out of all these things. I mean, the reality is it's very simple. You don't need a lot of inputs if you grow organically. Organic is a way of working within nature systems and it's been we supplanted it because it it was a dirty word in the usda's vocabulary for so long and they actually have done a great deal to undercut it we now they're now certifying uh capos which is totally not organic but the fact of the matter is that that we we know what we mean And, and these were, these words are used to, to begin to incorporate everything into it. It's, it's, I'm, one of the things I'm really deeply disturbed about at the moment is, I don't know, you probably know about this, Liesl, but you know, in, in Europe, there's a, there's a new thing in Europe, uh, called farm to, seed to table, I think it's called, which is an, an effort to move all of EU's agriculture in a more organic direction. That is to use, much less fertilizer and use less pesticides in a, in a graduated manner. And when our secretary of agriculture was asked whether he was part of, you know, we were going to be, have the same kind of system, he said, oh no, they do what they do. We do what we do. And our, our, our partnership is with Saudi Arabia. Don't ask me how that has to do with agriculture, but anyway, it's, that's what it is. But we're not, we're, we, he, he just gave a talk the other day at, at teachers college. And I went and got it offline so I could get what he meant. He, he gave a talk on, on, on nutrition security. Instead of food security, he thinks we need to talk about nutrition security. And he means the four pillars will be providing nutrition support to people of all ages, connecting Americans to healthy, safe and affordable food. And that's it. I mean, that's, we're not going, he's not touching. Anything about regenerative, sustainable, or anything else agriculture? He's just not. Our our country is not yet ready to do that because it goes up against all these powerful interests, and you just you know who who control Congress. I mean, I think I think you know the good news is that we have Cory Booker, who's a New Jersey Congressperson. We have Cory Booker on our side. He's trying to stop capos. He's trying to stop. CAFOs. He's trying to phase out the certification of CAFOs, which for all of you who don't know is confined animal feeding operations, these terrible places where they're jammed together to produce the maximum amount of meat on, from corn that they've grown in Iowa. Um, so anyway, I would, I'm i with you. Regenerative is termed
1: designed to confuse. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to invite Sarah Burkhardt, who is um, one of the the DSFS member from Australia, to join us. And she has some other questions that she's going to be reading. There you are, Sarah. Hi. Hi,
4: thank you. Yes. Um, Thank you, Joan and Lisa, too, for such wonderful and thought-provoking presentations. Um, We do have some questions coming through. So I might just start at our earlier ones and we will see what we get through. Um, one question we have is, I haven't had time yet to read the IPCC climate change report that was released yesterday, but I've not heard any sound bites that reference diet, food and ag as part of mitigating climate change. What do we as professionals need to do to get this message through to the mainstream media and consumers who could leverage purchasing power, <laughs> excuse me, to make systemic change at a time when people may be more willing to listen and act. The two speakers have already come close to addressing this, but do you have any more comments? Maybe, Joan, we could go to you first and see if you've got any thoughts on that. I know
3: I saw that report about that report coming out. In fact, I printed it out, so I would have it here to refer to. And and the truth of the matter is that it's tragic that we are not We have not already changed agriculture to, to, to begin to deal with these things. I mean, there's one of the, one of the facts that I've learned within the last 20 years that is most impressive to me is something I learned, uh, from a man who's, who, who, who studies animal nutrition. And he, and it was more enlightening to me than anything I've ever read because he said, he said in an interview that a cow can gain as much nutrition from one acre of well-managed pasture as from an acre. Do you have any idea what the implications of that are for for stopping global warming, for reducing energy use? If we just plowed over those cornfields and put them into pasture, instead of growing the corn, All the energy that goes into growing that corn, harvesting that corn, and then sending it out there to the feedlots, which is what happens to it. And just instead, we're just letting the cow graze on pasture. And then we're told that this is a waste. You know, that's part of the myth that this is a waste that we do it on pasture. But that that single statistic for me says we're doing it all wrong. You know, we have, there are other ways of doing well. And most of that corn, by the way, isn't even, isn't even, is a lot of us use for animal feed, but a lot of us use for high fructose corn syrup, which is another thing we don't really need, right?
2: I think I can also add to the response. um, And again, you know, redirect me if I'm, if I'm answering the wrong question, but I think what I heard also was, you know what can we do to amplify the IPCC report and the and the and the lack of connection between the report's findings and and direction for food and agriculture and although you know I'm no I'm not a climate change expert what I what I turn to for this and what I can direct the the questioner to is an organization called Table Debates used to be called the FCRN but Table Debates uh, has recently re- um, sub- or shared the IPCC report and then some really key uh, messages around what does this mean for food and agriculture? And I think those sound bites, and they have a, a list of very specific messages and none of them will sound surprising. They're the, they're the same things we've already talked about today. But if you're talking about, if the question is about how can we amplify, how can we communicate? Then Table Debates has done your homework for you. All you need to do is take their messages and increase them. So I think what I'll do is if I can, if I can find it, I'll put it into, I'll put the link into the chat. If, if I can't find the actual uh, article on IPCC, I'll put in Table Debates and you can look it up there. So, so they've well, done some of that work for you where you can take it, amplify those messages, use them for advocacy, post them on your social media.
3: Basically, it's called Table Debates. Is that what it's called?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll, uh, I'll put the link into the chat. They do fantastic translation work. That's great.
4: That's wonderful, Lisa. Thank you for sharing um, that and for both of your responses. We do have quite a few comments um, as I'm looking through our question list here, just saying thank you so much for the presentation. Um, Another question we do have is it seems like there's some challenges in making the right decisions for sustainable eating on regional levels. Is anyone working on a model that might provide some general advice for making food decisions regionally, for example, in northeastern US, the southeastern US, etc. An example would be should residents in Massachusetts choose dairy milk, oat milk or almond milk? I don't know, Lisa, whether you might like to start with that one.
2: Mm -hmm. It's a good question. And uh, if anyone knows, please do share that I know of. No, other than um, other than that many countries are now coming out with sustainability informed dietary guidelines. Um, and so, actually, most recently, Hungary just released their new dietary guidelines with very clear sustainability messaging. so this is a real challenge for us in Canada, and this is where I get the most uh, you know, and albeit industry driven pushback in Canada, is that so many of the messages, so much of the data that we draw on to say, what is a sustainable diet look like or sustainable food system look like, comes from global data, and a huge amount of it comes from Europe. So some of that is translatable to North America, and other Western countries, some of it is not. You know, Europe is very different than Australia. Northern U.S. is very different than the southern U.S. Ditto for Canada. So regionally specific data is very difficult to come across, but it's easier in a place like the United States than it is in even Canada or some other countries that have, um, have less resource capacity to do the locally specific research. So this is where I think... Those sustainability principles I introduced are really important. And some of the how-to messages, so talking to local producers, incorporating local knowledge. So that, I think, is work that dietitians can do on the ground. They can say, okay, so here are some key messages that are sort of globally relevant. How do we tweak them? And what I'd love to see are sustainably tire guidelines for Massachusetts, for Nova Scotia, for Australia, uh, because those messages are not, they're not always true. And my example around, you know, meat eating in northern Canada is, I think, a really good example of a time where those universal messages are both clinically and culturally inappropriate.
4: Thanks, Lisa. Um, Joan, I don't know whether you want to add anything to that response.
3: Well, I just in response to what uh, Lisa was just talking about, one of our colleagues named Jennifer Wilkins actually did a regional food guide for the for New York, and she and I actually calculated diets for the winter and the summer and all that kind of thing, and and so, but it never got picked up. It, you know, other people did not do it. And and that's you know, it's partly what the thing I was talking about before. I mean, I remember a friend of mine once wrote a cookbook for the Heart Association and wanted to publish wanted to publish a thing about Cornell bread because she thought it was such good bread. And you know, Cornell during the Second World War developed this bread which was very rich in nutri- nutrients because it had um uh, um what am I trying to say? You know, i can't think of the name of it the thing they take off wheat wheat germ <laughs> it had wheat germ and other things like that in it and and so she called cornell this was much later this was in the 50s she called cornell to ask them for the definitive recipe and their response was oh we don't recommend that anymore because you have to go to a... she said we we during the war we needed those nutrients <laughs> And you have to go to a health food store to get some of the ingredients. So we don't recommend it anymore. That's, that's where we get stuck in these absurd, I don't know what you'd call them, just where we are, you know. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, there's a long way to go. I love your, your, your things, Liesl. I liked your, your outlines. I thought that was very, very useful. Mm Yeah.
1: Well, we've come to the top of the hour, so um, I'm sure there's lots of different questions. And thank you, um, Joan and Liesl, for, for your resources, for your insights, uh, and sharing your perspectives. Um, the next slide shares information about our division. So the Division of Sustainable Food Systems um, is a place to continue this conversation, and we invite you to join um, uh, our, our committees, um, and maybe we will see you at the annual conference. Uh, different ways of following our activities is on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website. So Rachel, I'll
0: turn it back to you for the, the final final word. Thank you to all of our presenters. Wonderful information today. Just a reminder that when I close the webinar, there's a short survey and your feedback is appreciated. Uh, watch for an email that should arrive by Friday of this week with a link to the recording, uh, the handout in your CEU certificate. And then just a reminder, um, especially to anyone who's joining that's not an SNEB member, um, we encourage you to go to the SNEB website, SNEB.org, to explore uh, the benefits of joining SNEB. SNEB members get one division free, so you could pick the Sustainable Food System Division as your choice uh a division. Um J or B members also have access to the Journal of Nutrition, Education and Behavior, uh, which we've mentioned in this presentation. And also um, you get a discounted rate to attend the annual conference. Um, annual conference this year is scheduled for uh, July 29th through 31st. We will be meeting in person in Atlanta, Georgia, um, but we also have options to attend as a virtual um, virtually uh, attend the presentation and as well as have a virtual buddy. Uh, so we're going to match up uh, in-person attendees and virtual attendees so um, you could stay connected to each other throughout the conference. And again all that information is up on the website. Um, oh I had a special note to say ask students. Um, SNEB student membership is only um, $60 for the year and actually is prorated as the year goes through. Um, so it's actually a very affordable way to make some important connections and important resources as, as you move through your career. Uh, so once again, thank you for joining today. We look forward to having you uh, back on a future SNEB webinar. Okay. And thank
1: you again to the speakers, your excellent conversation will be inspiring.
2: Thank you for having us.